Good afternoon, afternoon, everyone. Excuse me, afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quests. This is the Tuesday edition where we get a chance to talk with you uh, about the Bible and its relevance for today. Uh, every Tuesday at two, I'm Justin Dobbs, and in just a moment, I'll introduce to you uh, our guest panelists for the day. But first, let me invite you to interact with us live. Uh, you can go to YouTube or you can go to BibleQuest.tv. Uh, we'll be happy to take any questions or comments that you have. We want to talk with you about the things that you're interested in, things that are important to you uh, in your journey to know the Lord and his word. Uh, today we have with us Tommy Keeler, who lives in Avon, Indiana. How are you doing today, Tommy? I'm doing well, Justin. Thank you. Good. I'm, I'm, glad to be, I'm glad to be on with you. Uh, first, I'm glad for the invitation. Uh, and I'm glad um, I finally got through my couple of hoops to get on. <laughs> Technology is such a blessing. When, when <laughs> right. Uh, glad you're here with us. Uh, and uh, Scott's not able to join us today, but he and I were talking about who to have on for this question. Uh, we want to talk today about uh, how a Christian should interact with the Old Testament. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard this said, Tommy, uh, but a dear friend of ours, Sid Latham, once said, I don't, I don't know if it's possible to be an Old Testament Christian, but if it is, uh, Tommy's one. <laughs> well, the, I think Sid meant that as a compliment. And so I think I'll he meant that. Uh, certainly, uh, we are informed by all of the scripture and it shapes us and molds us as Christians. So, uh, but yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's so I, I had this discussion just last Thursday night talking with some some folks during the Bible study. Uh, up, the question came up about the the place that the nation of Israel has with with the Lord. And I was trying to explain that biblically speaking, Israel is, is no longer God's covenant people. Um, that Romans teaches that there's a new Israel and uh, that met with a lot of resistance. We went and looked at Romans and talked through that, that there is a new covenant. Um, my understanding, and you correct me if I'm, I'm wrong about this, but my understanding is there's there's been a sharp break between the old covenant and the new covenant, and the old covenant is not just it's not just that it's no longer in effect for Christians, but it's no longer in effect. Is that is that the right idea? Well, first of all, I, I would say I agree with your assessment about um, God's special relationship with Israel. And I think a good passage to demonstrate that, Justin, uh, you mentioned Romans 9 to 11, but also in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29, that if you are um, Abraham's descendants, you are heirs of the promises by faith, um, and you're saved by faith, the text tells us, for as many of you who have baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then verse 29 is actually there in Galatians 3 where it says, mm -hmm. uh, if you're Abraham's seed, you're heirs according to the promise. God's people includes all those who are Jewish, all those who are not Jewish, who intend to follow Jesus. And uh, I think that what that is doing, I, I understand they're looking to the Old Testament for guidance and uh, instruction. What I would emphasize is where do we find the points of connection? Where do we find the points of discontinuity? 
I would stress, first of all, that our points of connection are in the nature of God. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16, Peter says, as the one who called you is holy, you yourselves be holy in all manner of conversation. For he said, be holy as I am holy. Now, that's a quote from Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. It actually appears five times in the book of Leviticus. Where is the link between us and the Old Testament? Uh, it is in the nature of God. It's not in what nation we're from. It's not in uh, where we were born, but it is a connection to the nature and character of God. So, so in other words, Christians in the new covenant have a connection to the old covenant, not because we're under that covenant, but we have a relationship with the same God. Uh, we have a relationship with God, and most of the Old Testament is telling us who God is. Okay. And the Old Testament tells us that God doesn't change. In Malachi 3, verse 6, for example, uh, James 1, 17 tells us that in the New Testament. And because his character is the same, we learn in the Old Testament about his holiness, about his wrath, about the depth of his love. Now, that doesn't mean the New Testament doesn't add to those pictures. The New Testament adds to the pictures of each of those. As a matter of fact, when we oh, talk about the love of God, a passage that I found Justin is misunderstood, I think is John 1.17. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Some people look at that and say there is no grace there's no mercy in the Old Testament. There's grace or mercy on every page of the Old Testament. Okay. Starting from Genesis 1. I mean, you look at Psalm 136. Psalm 136 discusses God's creation as proof of his loving kindness. I think that's especially verses 4 through 9 that stress the language of Genesis 1 and that being an expression of his loving kindness. And certainly... As God reveals himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, he is revealing himself as a God who is gracious and merciful, full of compassion, forgiving transgression and sins. So, so God's grace is all through the Old Testament. But I do believe that he's showing the preeminent display of grace is the cross of Christ. And okay. so in a certain sense, that that it builds on Old Testament re revelation, but takes it to a greater depth than we have ever known. And, and if I'm not answering any of your questions, you can feel free to ask them again, and and I'll do the best I can with them. No, no, it's a great, it's a great thought. Just the the idea that I don't know, I don't know that I've thought about it quite that way. That the God of the Old Testament has said, "I do not change." And so some some would object then to the idea that now we live in a different covenant because that means that God has changed. But I think your point is that that the new covenant doesn't change God; it reveals things about God that that complete the picture that's presented in the Old Testament. Exactly. Okay. okay. Exactly. And back to your original question about the selection of the Jewish nation. Um, you know, Paul. 
uh, talked about the blessings of the Jewish nation in Romans 3, 1 and 2, that they were given the oracles of God, or Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, he talks about all the great things in the Old Testament associated with the Jewish nation. But God's selection of the Jewish nation was always for the purpose of blessing all nations. Right. Genesis 12 and verses 1 through 3. That was his purpose of choosing that nation. Now, we see glimpses of that in the Old Testament with Ruth, who was a Moabite, with uh, Naaman, who was cleansed and says there's no God in all the world except in Israel. We see glimpses of that all through the Old Testament. Jonah, who preaches to Nineveh, and they repent. Maybe short-lived, but they repent for a period of time. But the full manifestation, manifestation of that comes in Jesus as God's purpose for Israel becomes manifest that through the seed that comes from Abraham and comes from David, he will seek to reach all nations. Okay. Well, then I, I have a question about this. And um, I was talking with someone who, who was coming out of, out of Islam. They had been... <laughs> they had they had gone to school as a child at a, a Catholic school. Their father was a Muslim. Um, they had gone off into just worldliness, and then they started reading their Bible, and they decided they wanted to become a Christian. But then later, as they were reading and reading and reading, they got to some Old Testament passages, like for example, in Leviticus, where there's a law in chapter 17 about uh, drinking blood. Or they got to a passage uh, like in Deuteronomy where it says that the son should not die for the sins of the father. Yes. They saw that in conflict with the the propitiation of Jesus and his instruction that, you know, you're going to need to drink my blood and my your life is in me. How would you how would you lead us through the old covenant to help us to see that Jesus actually is not in contradiction? those ideas okay um and uh i'm i'll do the best i can offhand to to answer that uh one of the things that um i i like to teach in school and um the students somehow identified me with is lex talionis the idea of the punishment fits the crime and and, and let me just illustrate this by discussing that subject and lex talionis in its purest form is stated in passages like exodus 21 verses 22 through 24 uh, leviticus 24 uh, verses 16 through 22 and also deuteronomy 19 21 those are the three statements of lex talionis um but in the book of esther you see uh, Haman as an evil man who was so angry that Mordecai the Jew doesn't bow down to him mm -hmm. that he determines to kill the whole Jewish people. Then after he determines to kill the whole Jewish people, he becomes so incensed one day at Mordecai that he can't wait for that to be accomplished. And so... He builds a gallows 75 feet high 
on which to hang Mordecai when he's going into the king's presence in Esther 6 to ask the execution of Mordecai. The king is at the same time pondering how he can bless Mordecai. And he asks Haman, what shall be done for the man the king delights to honor? Haman thinks it's him and he discusses all these things he would like, but he ends up doing these things for Mordecai. That leads to Esther 7. That leads to the fact that Haman ends up being hanged on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. That's a good illustration of what we mean by Lex Talionis, that often the traps that the wrongdoer lays for someone else end up catching and capturing himself. Proverbs 26, verse 27 states that well about um, if you dig a trap, you'll be caught in it. And if you roll a stone, it will roll back on you. And, I, and I'm paraphrasing it, Justin. But, but in a certain sense, I do believe in Jesus. Instead of the word for gallows in Hebrew in the book of Esther is the same word for tree that's used in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. Cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. A passage that's quoted and applied to Jesus in Galatians 3 and verse 13. I think in a certain way, Jesus does reverse this picture where the innocent is suffering what the guilty deserve. The innocent is suffering for the sins of the guilty. And in a certain way, I, I do feel that that in a way he stands Lex Talionis kind of on its head. But that shows us a picture of the depth and richness of the mercy of God. You know, God could have said, okay, everything you've prepared for someone else is what you get eternally. But God sending his son bore the punishment for our sins so that through him we could be forgiven and saved. So I think, it, I think it should only increase our wonder and awe at the mercy of God and not make us question um, God. Yeah. That would, be, that's my, that would be my response. No, I, I think that's, that's really helpful. And that, that makes me think of a passage that's used in the New Testament to teach someone the gospel from the Old Testament. In Acts 8, you have Philip, going down to uh, the road to Gaza. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53. And there's this passage where he, he says, you know, is, is that talking about Isaiah? Is that talking about someone else? And, you know, he, he begins there to teach to him about Jesus. Yes. And, uh, of course, that passage um, talks about someone bearing the sins of another, that the yes. Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we have to have to let the Old Testament square with itself. Yes. The Old Testament says the guilty deserve punishment, and yet God is pleased to punish on our behalf this other person. So it, it sort of creates a, a, an intentional hole. It's like there's a, a purposeful gap, and, and God allows that gap to continue uh, until Jesus comes and fills that gap for us. Mm -hmm. 
I think that that's good correlating Acts 8 uh, with Isaiah 53. Jesus fulfills the whole Old Testament. Um, and Jesus, um, in a certain sense, is the interpretive key to unlock the meaning of the Old Testament. There, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians 3, beginning with verse 6, that when one reads the law of Moses, a veil remains over the heart. But when one reads Christ, the veil is taken away. I don't think that's discouraging us from reading the Old Testament or studying the Old Testament or uh, saying that the Old Testament is just a set of, of rigid requirements with no mercy. But it is telling us that Christ is the interpretive key for understanding the Old Testament. And that in a very real sense, when we read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, the veil is taken away and the understanding is enriched. Okay. Uh, and, and, I, and, and I would say, while that's true as a whole, there's no part of the life of Christ that is more stressed in the scriptures than his death and resurrection. And when he's talking to the two on the way to Emmaus in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to him the things concerning himself in all of scripture. Now, Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture, but especially in his death and resurrection, that is the central point, central point uh, of the Old Testament. It's veiled, uh, but in Christ, that veil is taken away. Okay. And so, so that means that I, I should be... I should be seeing Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. You, you mentioned even God's mercy is shown in Genesis 1, his desire to bless us. Uh, I, I see Jesus showing up in Genesis 3, obviously, yeah. with the, the curse and then the, the promised blessing of the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Yes. Um, at the same time, I, I, do, I do struggle sometimes when I read people who sort of turned the Old Testament into an allegory of Jesus. So, for, for example, um, reading Exodus chapter 2, um, someone said that I was missing it. And I was reading about the story of Moses, and Moses's father-in-law had seven daughters. Uh, Moses marries one of them. And he says, don't you see that's the seven churches of Asia and Revelation, and Moses is taking the bride of Christ. And I went, yes. You know what do I do, what do I do with that? Well, I, yeah, I I, I uh, and I don't I don't mean to laugh because you know people are at different levels of understanding and um, um, how do I keep from making that mistake? Well, I understand and I do think we have to try to be disciplined and think through it, and we also recognize that some analogies are are not perfect; they're, they're limited at analogies 
they're often because of a vocabulary word that's made and we can't make a link in every point and I, and I would say too that one of the things I would say right off Justin to to counter that is that Christ is a fulfillment of the Old Testament but that doesn't mean necessarily like everything that happens in church experience is always reflected in the Old Testament, like the seven wife, the seven daughters of, of Jethro or Ruel uh, uh, referring to the seven churches. Uh, so I want to be disciplined uh, in looking at those comparisons and yet, at the same time, I don't want to be blind to something that's there. And I think a lot of the times in teaching, what it does is good to say is to say, and I try to say, if I have enough time, to sometimes say, this point is something I feel confident about. This point is something that you might want to put an asterisk by. I think it may be there. But you need to look at this. You need to think about this. I'm suggesting a possibility and not being, you know, dogmatic. But, but I do think there are enough hints in some places that lead us to look for those things. I would have never said, would have never said like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, unless he had said it. And that rock that followed them was Christ. I right. just would not have made that connection right. to the wilderness experience and the rock the water comes out of in, in Exodus 17. Paul made it, and Paul is inspired of God, and he's right. So I adjust my understanding to fit what he said, but, but I wouldn't have made that connection. There are other places where a connection is not uh, explicitly made, but I think it's so clear, it, it's it's rather striking, it would be hard to miss. For example, um, Samson is not always a good character in Judges 13 through oh, well, 16. Is he ever a good character? Well, that's, that would be the better question, Justin. Is he ever a good character? But, but, but certainly not always a model, not holding him up as a great example. And yet, when he dies, grasping the pillar with his right hand and the pillar with his left, I mean, there, he is betrayed by his people. He is betrayed for money by one of those closest to him. Hard not to see foreshadowings of Jesus. But at some points, those, those connections are contrast. They are not comparisons. For example, when Samson dies in Judges 16, verse 28, he says, remember me, O Lord, and uh, let me take vengeance for my eyes on the Philistines. What a contrast with Jesus dying in Luke 23, 34, in saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That is, that is a pretty striking contrast right there. It, it seems almost as though we're to, we're meant to take the Old Testament and and attempt to read it without without Jesus in the picture and just see that story play itself out and then sort of take the story of Jesus. And you remember those old 
transparencies. You'd, you'd sort of yeah. lay those plastic sheets over and, and see where they line up and then let the places they don't line up uh, accentuate the story of Jesus. So like with Samson, he's wanting vengeance. Jesus is providing the uh, satisfaction of righteous wrath uh, and he's offering forgiveness. And so it's uh yeah, I think you said more clearly. You said something there really good. We read the Old Testament contextually. We look at it contextually and try to figure it out in its own context. That's what we do first. Our first task is not just to look for verses we can pick and select for Jesus. Right. We look for passages and what they mean in their own context. But but and that's a, that's a powerful illustration here. That kind of like the old transparency that you lay over the top of another, that then you look at the life of Christ and you see points of comparison, points of contrast. Uh, and um, if it is not, if you do not see it there, I would say don't force it. Just mm -hmm. keep reading. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe there's an element here that doesn't apply in the same way. Or maybe we just don't see it yet, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean he's not there. Just just keep reading and uh, go on. I, I, you know, Lord willing, tonight, Justin, I'm I'm going to teach a class on Psalm 84, and there's a statement. We we try at the end of the class and and uh, at the end of the podcast I do on the Psalms, we I try to emphasize how Jesus fulfills the various Psalms. And there's a statement about this man who longed to be in the temple and longed to be in God, God's presence. In Psalm 84, 11, it says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's Psalm 84, verse 11. Jesus adds such a dimension to that. When in Romans 8, 32, if God did not spare his own son, will he not freely give us all things? Mm. So the same idea is there that God will not withhold anything good, whatever the cost to himself, he will not withhold anything good from his people. Which gets back to your point about the character of God. You know, what, what's helping us in the Old Testament is our, our taste of God's character is being trained. It's like our, our ears are being trained to hear the voice of God. And so when we get to see Jesus, he's familiar. Uh, we, we hear his voice more clearly because we've been accustomed to understanding God's grace and justice and goodness in the Old Testament, uh, yeah. Jesus just makes makes more sense of it than mm -hmm. we saw in the Old Testament. Yes. So, well, I have a question for you then. Um, uh, Ten Commandments. Uh, they are near and dear to the heart of so many. Um, I was born and raised in Alabama, and there was a, a, a fight uh, for a while with a particular judge who wanted Ten Commandments uh, yes, on display in his courtroom, and um, you know, right or wrong, they, they have stood 
as a a witness to law to moral code that yeah. is ancient um and so we ought to have a respect certainly for god's law but what, what is a christian to do with the ten commandments well um first of all um as you're stating in a world where many people have forgotten that there is any absolute right and wrong they stand as a testimony to the fact that god um god has always required certain types of behavior and uh, I, I think it would be interesting uh if we put in every uh, schoolroom across America, those words, you shall not murder, and give the verse with it. The verse adds the idea that if you escape enforcement here, then there'll be enforcement afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I just say that maybe that is the solution to violence, but, but I know that's not your big point overall. And I would state that the principles behind most of those commandments are applicable to us in the same way they have always been. But uh, there was one that was particularly Jewish, and that was the commandment to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. In Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, that is tied with the days of creation on six days god created the world the seventh day he rested and therefore you are to keep the sabbath in deuteronomy 5 verses 12 through 15 however it's connected with deliverance from egyptian bondage that you were slaves in egypt and the lord set you free and therefore you keep the sabbath day so the reminder of that commandment was something that was particularly Jewish to remember deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And uh, it is very interesting tracing the tracing the Sabbath day uh, throughout the Old Testament and to see times when they kept it and times when it didn't. It was given as the sign of the covenant between God and Moses in Exodus 31 verses 12 through 18. And I think is, that is because the amount of faith that was required to keep it. You mm-hmm. see in Exodus 34, uh, verse 21, that uh, even in plowing and harvest, they would remember the Sabbath and keep it, even in the busiest times of the year. And also it's connected with the, uh, with the um, Sabbath year in Leviticus 25. Now, I'm still working my way to an answer here. <laughs> I think that that passage in Deuteronomy 5 is key in that it shows us what the Sabbath was about was deliverance from the bondage and slavery of sin. It was a picture of that. On the seventh year, a person was forgiven their debts. They were forgiven their debts. And if they were slaves, they were set free. All of those a picture of salvation a picture of salvation in christ in luke 13 verses 10 through 17 jesus healed a woman uh, who was stooped over on the sabbath day 
And as he healed this woman that was, was stooped over, uh, he said, should not this woman be freed on the Sabbath whom Satan has bound these 18 years? I think he uses language like that in verse 12, in verse 16 of Luke 13. Satan has bound these wow. uh, 18 years. Just like the Sabbath was about deliverance from bondage, Jesus' miracles on the Sabbath were not just an effort to irritate people, but to try to instruct them as to what is the true meaning of the Sabbath. What is it that the Sabbath was all about? The Sabbath was about deliverance from bondage. And those pictures of forgiveness of debts and um, forgiveness of debts and freedom from slavery are a picture of the salvation that we have in Christ. In, um, in Leviticus 25, uh, Justin, where the Bible talks about the seventh year and the year of Jubilee, um, most of the mentions of the word Jubilee uh, are in that particular passage. I, I, um, I need to be making sure of this 100% and looking this up as I am saying this, okay? But my point is most of the mentions of Jubilee are, 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 uh, that are used in that passage uh, are, are, are used in that passage of Leviticus uh, 25. And the word that is used for jubilee is the word that is used in the New Testament for forgiveness. Let me make sure that, yes, you shall proclaim a release, Leviticus 25 and verse 10. And so I think all they were freed from on that sabbatical year is a foreshadowing of salvation in Christ. And I do believe if you look at Colossians 2, 16 and 17, that these things are a shadow of Christ and they were not intended as eternal moral principles in the same way that you shall not murder and you shall not steal work. Uh, I do think there is a shadow there that has been fulfilled in Jesus and is yet to be fulfilled in eternity, as Hebrews 4, 9 reveals as well. That we're waiting to... Remains a Sabbath for people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was very helpful. And, and it reminds me of when Jesus uh, goes to Nazareth in Luke 4, and he takes yeah. up the scroll from Isaiah. And, yes. And, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, you know, those, those who were bound. Uh, and then verse 19 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It seems to be a reference back to this year of, of Jubilee. Yes. Uh, so, so Jesus, you know, I would have, I would have loved to have known how a, a 10 year old a 12 year old a 14 year old jesus is is reading the old testament and he's going you know that that's me <laughs> that's about me uh, but here he is 30 years old and he's reading this scroll and he says this this is me uh, so it's just it is 
it is fascinating that the Ten Commandments have stuck with us so long and people uh, uphold them as this moral code. Um, the, the principles, though, are what we're looking for. Is that, that kind of what you're saying? Well, in a lot of ways, yes. And, and, and I would express too, Justin, and as I think you would too, and you can correct me if I'm not representing you, I have a respect for that because those who want to remove the Ten Commandments from public life, their motive is not, does the Sabbath really apply to us in the same way? That's not their motive. Their motive is to eliminate God and moral standards from the public, from the public discourse. That's their motive. And so no sympathy, no sympathy with that worldview. If you want to remove God from life, you want to see what that looks like, read Judges 19, where God never is mentioned, and just see what kind of world that's going to be. So, so I have a sympathy for those people who are emphasizing the importance of those. But I would say that they, it's often the debate centers on how we should view the Sabbath today. When Paul wrote Galatians and he told those Christians to, you know, to not be involved in the, um, that they follow Christ by faith and they are not to be involved in the works of the law. Well, what does that mean? Well, in the book of Galatians, Paul emphasizes several subjects that they could not bind on Gentile believers. They could not bind on Gentile believers circumcision in Galatians 2, 3 through 5, or Galatians 5, verse 1. They couldn't bind that. And when they try to circumcise Titus, Paul says we didn't give in to them for an inch. So you can't demand that Gentile believers be, be circumcised. You can't demand they observe the food laws. That was the... That was the argument between Peter and Paul in Galatians 2, beginning with verse 11, where Paul withstood him to the face. He he was not eating with Gentiles. He withdrew from the Gentiles and would not eat them. I think those food laws were to keep Israel separate from the nation. Leviticus 20, verses 24 through 26. I think that was their purpose. And I think that now that... The gospel has gone to all nations. You cannot bind those things on, on, on Gentiles. But the other issue, Justin, is Galatians 4, verses 10 and 11. I fear for you, for you observe days and seasons and things of this nature. They were trying to bind on the Gentiles things like the Sabbath, trying to bind on Gentiles things like um the keeping of feast days, Jewish feast days. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul emphasizes in Galatians that undermines the adequacy of Christ and his cross for salvation. So really helpful, this, this undermining of the gospel by insisting that we maintain the, the old law. Um, is it right then to say that even the Ten Commandments, you know, you mentioned Second Corinthians a moment ago, even the Ten Commandments, they've been uh, complete and fulfilled in Christ. We're no longer under those things, but the principles of those things have been 
been repeated. Well, I think Paul shows in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, where uh, he quotes several of the commandments and he applies them to Christians. And he says, if there's any other commandment, it is fulfilled in love your neighbor as yourself. That in loving God, in loving our neighbor, we are not going to worship any other God. We're not going to make graven images. Uh, We are not going to take his name vainly because we love him with all we are. We are to honor our parents and to respect them. We're not to murder, not to steal, not to commit adultery, not to bear false witness, and not to covet. You see all of those things emphasized in the New Testament, both in specifics and in principles. And, but the Sabbath is unique among them. That while you find the Jewish people keeping the Sabbath, you do not find that bound on any Gentile believers. Uh, And I I just, I I think that it is in a separate ballpark from 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 those those other commandments in that respect i don't want to i don't want to emphasize i don't want to underemphasize the importance of some examples of obedience in the old testament like you see in hebrews 11 emphasized or the serious warnings against disobedience i mean we can read numbers 15 32 through 36 about the person stoned Right. We tried to gather sticks on the Sabbath. We can learn lessons from it. But does that mean the Sabbath applies to us in the same way? I, I just I think Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Galatians 4, um, and verses 10 and 11, and passages like this show no. Um, let, let me illustrate it to this way, Justin, and, and I hope this will be helpful to somebody. Um the idea that we just go back to the Bible and just follow the Bible. Um, it is an idea that, that has been common in religious groups throughout history. But some have put the focus on, I think, the wrong thing. For example, there are groups that will try to go back and think we need to imitate something of the customs and manners and clothing of the New Testament times. I don't know if that's where the key link is. There are other groups that go back to the New Testament, but they look at the spiritual gifts the apostles did and look at that as the point of connection. And and I think their, their idea of just going back to the Bible and just following the Bible is a grand idea, but I think they've made the point of connection in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. And, and so I want to learn from that when we look at the Old Testament. We, we see things that are eternally relevant, and even in a sense, filtered through Christ, applicable, but we must read it in a proper way and see the proper point of connection. It's going to start with who God is, and it's going to uh, be a second point of how it speaks of the Christ 
Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he spoke about me. Right. In John 5, 45 through 47. Well, Tommy, we, this has been so great. I'm, I've got a lot of notes here. I want to go back and go over. Um, just one final question for us. If, um, if, if you were working with someone who just wasn't used to reading the Old Testament, maybe they were a new Christian or they've been a Christian for a while, but they just had not been comfortable reading the Old Testament. They, they might come across on Judges 19, for example, and say, I, I'm in over my head. I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. How, how would you lead them through that? Re recommend a place to start or a strategy to go about reading the Old Testament in a way that's useful as a Christian? Well, that's, that's, that's a, uh, it's a good question, a good um, um, thought. I think that you got to start at the beginning and to see the foundation that God lays in creation. Personally, I would encourage them to kind of read through the uh, historical books of the Bible, and I will include uh, Leviticus through Deuteronomy in that, but, but I would say those would be the first 17 books in most of your Bibles, Genesis through Esther. Read through them and get a storyline of the Old Testament. As you see God's people from the beginning, uh, as he creates man and woman in the garden in Genesis 2, to the time they go to Babylonian captivity and return uh, in the book of Esther. And then I would begin to read the prophets and to see how they fit in. Try to, to locate where they would be on that timeline and uh, then read the prophets. What were their messages to those people? How does that expand my knowledge of those historical books? And then I think, and, and I'm not, I don't mean to minimize anything in importance. Maybe the the poetic books, how they shape our understanding of God. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon. That's just a strategy. One of the values of that strategy, though, Justin, is I mentioned historical books first. I do believe they, with the exception of some portions of Leviticus through uh, Deuteronomy are going to be the easiest to understand. Mm -hmm. It is easier for us to follow a story. We we identify the limits of this story. Okay, where does the story begin and end? Sometimes chapter divisions help in that. Sometimes they don't, but most of the times they do. And get down these stories. What happens then? Uh, the preaching. Um, that is done by the prophets in those periods. But if you get the historical books down, lays a good foundation for what's going to come along um, afterwards. But I, I understand for someone who doesn't know the Old Testament at all, and I'm sure that there are people who will stumble on this who would say, hey, what you're saying sounds great. What y'all are saying sounds great, but I don't know where to begin. It is an overwhelming task, but there was a time in everyone's life when they knew some, nothing about something that was a very big subject, 
and just take a step at a time. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And I would say, just take that first step and add a step at a time uh, to find yourself uh, teachers who can help you see the big picture would be a great thing. And I'm sure people, uh, you would you'd be glad to make room for someone else to study. And so would I. And uh, so uh, so if if we can help in those regards, you know, God bless. Absolutely. So, yeah, and the benefits are certainly worth it. Uh, reminded Second Timothy three, Paul talks about the the benefits of of the scriptures that are inspired and, and they're profitable and useful. Uh, that make us complete. Uh, Tommy, this has been so great. Thanks for coming and, and joining hey, us today. Hey, it's a privilege privilege to be on Justin, and, and I'm so, I'm sorry I ran Scott off, um, <laughs> but um, he'll be sorry but, he missed. You. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and thanks everybody for tuning in for us today. If you found this study helpful, this discussion, uh, please share it with others, uh, pass it along. Uh, join us at BibleQuest.tv if you have other things you'd like for us to talk about. Uh, we want to talk about the things that are important to you and see what God has to say about those. Until next time, God be with you. We plan on seeing you next week. All right.